Wow, we are finally here. We are at the end of our What Is series. I know some of you have been wondering if we would ever get here. We started this series in March, and now we are at the end, and it's appropriately that we're at the end because that's the name of the last question. What is the end? What are the, the last things? And while I say we're at the end, don't get too excited. It's going to take me seven Sundays to answer that question. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you'll look in your bulletin, you'll see exactly how I'm going to do that. Uh, today I'm going to be looking at what is the rapture, and then you'll see kind of there in the bulletin the next six questions that we're going to be taking on, dealing with the, the tribulation and the millennium, the antichrist, and that number 666. Uh, you'll see in the bulletin those different questions that we're going to be taking on. You know, when we come to this topic, this subject of end things, the last things, the last days, it's very intriguing. We, we like this. It, you know, part of it's very interesting. Part of it's kind of spooky. It just kind of gets us going. And, and to a lot of us, it probably seems kind of confusing, kind of, kind of shrouded in mystery. But you know, if you look at prophecy in the Bible and how it has been fulfilled, you know, when you and I hear the word prophecy, we think about these things that are still to come. But as you go back into the Bible, there's a lot of prophecy that was given and it has already been fulfilled. There was a lot of prophecy about the first coming of Christ and the events around that. There was prophecy about who would be what king of a pagan nation would would lead the, the Jews out of exile. There's a lot of different places where God has prophesied. And it's been fulfilled. And we learn two things about looking at, at prophecy that's been given and fulfilled. Number one, God's batting a thousand. God doesn't miss it. He's been right every single time. I mean, that's phenomenal. I mean, folks, our world tends to lift up somebody like Nostradamus, who do you realize has never been right? He's the expert on the future and he's never been right. And, and even when he shoots for the future, I mean, he's got a bullseye the size of the moon. I mean, you just say anything kind of around. Oh, look, there he told the future. And yet when you look at God telling prophecy, when you look at God giving the future, he gives very great detail, names, places, timing. He gives exact details about his future. And that's kind of the second thing that we see is all of God's prophecy is literally fulfilled. In other words, folks, it happens exactly like it reads. It happens exactly like it says. You know, when we open up books like Ezekiel and Daniel and, and obviously books like, like Revelation, it gets kind of confusing and a lot of people like to put mystery and, and secrets and codes. That's the big word today. You know, there's a code to break in the Bible. Folks, that's not God. God has never been into codes. There is no code in the Scripture. You don't turn to the middle of your Bible and pick a verse and multiply it by the change in your pocket, subtract your IQ and add your birth date, and you'll come up with who the Antichrist is. God's never directed anybody in the history of Scripture to do anything like that. God's just the opposite. He, he's not hiding something. He's not making something mysterious. He's making it clear. What's the name of the last book of the Bible? It's not the mystery, it's the revelation. He's a revealer. He's wanting to show us. And when we read this stuff, we wouldn't, shouldn't go, gosh, now, now what does that mean other than what it says? Folks, it means what it says. It, it, the more we look at Scripture and prophecy, the more we go, really, you know, there's not a lot of symbols. There, there, there's not a lot of mystery. It, it happened just like he said it was going to happen. So that's how we, as we look at prophecy that's been given and fulfilled, that's how we should understand prophecy that is coming. Now, why does God tell us the future? 
He didn't owe us the future. He didn't didn't make a promise somewhere, I will give you the future. Why does the Lord give us the future? That's a good question. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, as we real quickly try to answer that question. If you get to the end of your New Testament, Revelation, and start backing up to the left, you'll run into 2 Peter pretty quick. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. 2 Peter chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm not actually going to read a verse out of 2 Peter 3. I'm going to make three points, and you'll see on the screen where those points are coming from in 2 Peter 3. And I want you to be able to look down in your, in your Bible and see if what I'm saying is right or not. So I'm not going to read it, though. But why does God give us the future? Folks, God has promised that He's coming back. God has promised that Jesus is going to return to this earth. That is our belief. That is our hope. That is to be so strong in our lives that it actually affects how I live today. All this time we spend thinking about what's going to happen way, way out there is to affect how I treat my mate. It's to affect the decision making. It's to affect whether we forgive that person or not. It, It is to affect why we keep going and doing good even though we're tired and unrewarded. What's the motivation for all that? One thing. Jesus is coming back. This is a central truth to the New Testament. One minor little problem. It's been like 1,976 years since he gave that promise. I mean, that's a long time, isn't it? I mean, that's long enough to go, you know, I think I'm being stood up. I, I, I think they're not showing up. That's a long time. As a matter of fact, that's the issue Peter is addressing after only 30 years. And when somebody makes a promise to it, we kind of look for the fulfillment of it, don't you? If somebody makes a promise to you, you're not expecting that to be fulfilled in 30 years You're expecting it to happen pretty soon. And so here's this truth that is supposed to be motivating and directing my life. And yet this time starts to kind of make that that truth wane in our lives. And that's why God gives us prophecy. God gives us prophecy. God tells us the, the, the future to battle doubts, to keep this hope alive, to keep it in front of us. Here in 2 Peter 3, it's going to say, In these last days, mockers will come. People will mock the idea of the Lord's return. Now let me say something real quickly about that phrase, those two words, the last days. That's three words, I guess. The last days. You know, a lot of times we hear songs that talk about prophecies being fulfilled, the signs of the times. We hear about prophecy conferences. And we go to these conferences and we hear about, you know, all these world events moving into place. It looks like the signs are coming together and and we're about to enter the last days. That's intriguing. It's kind of exciting and motivating. It's just not biblical. This idea, because it all communicates that the the, either we're just entering the last days or, or that the last days are right in front of us. And that's not true. Folks, we've been in the last days. We've been in the last days since Acts chapter one, verse nine. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, and his last words were, I'm coming back. When he ascended up into heaven, we entered at that second, the last days. What makes it the last days is there's nothing else that has to happen before he returns. There's no, there is no sign. That's the problem with saying signs are being fulfilled. Folks, there is no sign that needs to be fulfilled for Christ to return. We're not waiting for the lining up of nations or different events. Nothing needs to happen for the rapture to take place. Nothing needs to happen for this day of the Lord, the second coming, to take place. Now, when I say second coming, 
We, we tend to think of that as being a single event a day. The New Testament often teaches the second coming. The Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. It, it's actually a series of events that includes the rapture, the tribulation, Armageddon, the return of the Lord. All of these things together do not need any sign. It could have happened a thousand years ago. It could be a thousand years away. It could happen tonight. There's no sign. So we're in the last days. But gosh, then you say, okay, well, so we're in the last days, but it's still taken almost 2,000 years. Where, where is he? What's going on? You know, if you think about it, Peter is saying that people will mock the idea of his return. You know, time is kind of a mocker, isn't it? That doesn't time, the addition of year after year after year, kind of mock the idea that Jesus is actually returning? You know, it mocks it in our own life. It makes it unreal to us. Uh, let me show you what I mean. I bet if we did a poll in this room and said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is going to bodily, physically, visibly return to this earth? I mean, I would assume we'd probably get like a 95% or better rate. Yes, I believe that. That's our belief. That is our hope. We would all agree with that, or most of us would all agree with that. And yet, this major belief, this major hope, I would dare say that that same 95% or more may very well have just lived an entire week without thinking about the Lord's return even once. Matter of fact, maybe even a significant amount of that group has lived the entire last month without thinking about the Lord's return even once. Matter of fact, I wonder how many are in here right now going, gosh, I don't, I don't really remember when I last really thought about the return of the Lord. Thought on it enough that it was actually my hope. Thought on it enough that it was actually directing how I made decisions. You see, folks, it's kind of become unreal to us. Oh, I believe in it. But how real is it? What kind of impact and effect is it having on our lives? Folks, that's why God's given us prophecy to battle our doubts, to keep it real, to keep it there as a motivation in our lives and say, hey, man, when the Lord writes this stuff, it always happens. He's batting a thousand and it happens just like he reads. So he gives it to us to battle doubts. Second reason that God gives us prophecy is to warn us. It's to warn us. You know, as you read about verse 8, 9, and 10, Peter starts talking about this long delay in God returning. And he says, you know, it's not really that God's slow. It's not that he's delaying. There's two issues going on here. One, God has a little bit different watch than we have. His timetable works a little bit differently than ours does. But the second thing is, God's not slow, he's patient. He's patient because you see, folks, what is coming to this earth is horrific. What is about to happen on this planet is horrible. That's what we're going to be dealing with next week. We're going to be looking at 19 judgments. Don't fear, I'm not going through each 19 and, and explain each of them. Wouldn't that be point number 13? Um, we're not going to be going through that, but I'm going to show you 19 judgments. Folks, just real quickly, two of the 19 judgments, just two of them, are going to result in over half the planet being killed in two events. If you take all the judgments together and the people it talks about that are going to be killed during this time, it would roughly average out to about 1.8, 1.9 million people a day dying from these different judgments. This is a horrific event, the tribulation, that is going to happen to this planet. God actually is not in a hurry to get it here. He is patient because He doesn't want you to have to go through the tribulation. 
He is patient because he doesn't want you to have to go to hell. That's what Peter says there. He wants people to be saved. Let me show you how God's patience worked. He could have come last night. And if he came last night, there would be some people sitting in this room right now who'd be in deep trouble. If he came last night, there are people in this room who are absolutely not ready for that to happen. And they would enter the tribulation and more than likely if the tribulation, they would then enter hell. So God's not in a hurry. He's patient. And so guess what God does? He says, you know what? I'm patient. He sees you. He loves you. So he let you wake up this morning. He let you get here so you could hear this news and possibly have the opportunity to respond. You see how his patience is working? He's giving people a chance to respond. Now, while he's patient. Peter also says. The day is still coming. It's still out there. There will be a day when God says this is it. And he sends his son back into this world and then it's over. And you hear that and you hear what Peter saying, you got to ask, am I ready? Third reason that God tells us the future is to affect how we live. I've already kind of addressed that, but I like the way Peter puts this here. He says, knowing all these things. And the things he's talking about, what we're going to be studying these seven weeks, knowing about the rapture, the the tribulation, the antichrist, the millennium, knowing about heaven and hell. Now that you know all these things, man, it's just so clear. You see that phrase there? It's clear what kind of people you ought to be. You see, he reaches out there and he takes his stuff we know in the future and says, it's clear then how I should live today. And you might read that and say, well, I'm I'm not so sure I'm so clear. What's the clarity? And he says, you know, the knowledge of the future should affect your life in three ways. Your holiness, that's your position. That's your position before God, your separateness from the world. It it should affect your personality, your godliness. You and I are growing in God-likeness. We're growing in Christ-likeness. That's who we are, our personality. And it should affect what we're eager about, what we're passionate about. The more we study prophecy, the more excitement, the more hope we should have in his return. Folks, we got hopes in all kinds of things. We hope we get a job. We hope we get a pay raise. We hope we get to move. We, we, we hope we get healed. We hope something gets fixed. We hope that person goes away. We hope that person comes. We got all kinds of hopes. And you know what? It's okay to have those hopes. It's okay to go to God with those hopes. But folks, ultimately, there should just be one hope in your life. And that's his return. Because when you and I pray about all these other little hopes that we have, folks, ultimately, all prayers are answered when Jesus touches this planet. When Jesus returns to this planet, that's when all wrongs are made right. That's when we get a body that will last forever. That, that's when justice is done and evil is taken, taken care of. All of our prayers are answered in his return. That's to be our hope. So you, do you see the problem if we're never even thinking about it? If it's rarely going through our mind and our heart. So Peter says this is to be affecting this knowledge of the future is to be affecting your position, your personality. It's to be affecting your passion. So, folks, that's kind of a little introduction to the entire series. As we learn this information, as we walk through each of these issues, I'm to be thinking, how's this affecting how I'm living and who I am and what my hope and excitement is? That's how we need to be looking at each of these questions. Now, our first question today, what is the rapture? What is that? Well, the word rapture, actually, you'll thumb through your Bible. You won't find that word. It's a Latin word. It's taken out of the Latin Bible. It's translated into the English language, caught up. 
And so if you were in, and we're going to be there in a moment, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it talks about an event where the dead in Christ, those who have died, are going to rise up. They're going to resurrect out of their graves. Those of us who are still alive are going to join them, and we're going to rise up, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. That is the rapture, that event by, whereby we rise up, we meet the Lord, our mortal bodies are transformed into immortal bodies. In other words, folks, the rapture is when Jesus comes and gets the Christians. Live or dead, and he takes us to heaven. That's what the rapture is. Let's look at a couple of passages that describe this, the what of the rapture. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go through the Gospels and Romans, you'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. It says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's not a prophetic statement, but I thought I just need to camp out there just for a few seconds. Flesh and blood. Folks, if all you are is flesh and blood, you're not going to heaven. That, that, that's not a Baptist belief. That's not this church's belief. That's not this pastor's belief. That's what the Scripture says. If all you are is flesh and blood, you're not going to heaven. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to have something more than that. Jesus says you need to be born again. You need to have a spiritual life. And that happens when we place our faith and trust in Him. If that hasn't happened... And this event called the rapture happens, you're not going to inherit it. You're not going to be a part of it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will all be changed. That's the rapture. It's that event where the dead in Christ, the alive in Christ are changed. They're transformed into their eternal bodies, their eternal lives. Flip over one more passage, 1 Thessalonians. Go to your right a few books. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It's right after Colossians. You get to Timothy, you've gone too far. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. A little bit longer passage detailing what the rapture is. It says there, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. You see that word again? Did you see that the Bible's not about codes and mysteries and hiding truths? It's like, I want you to know. I'm revealing. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, concerning your loved ones, your friends who've passed away, so that you will not grieve like the rest. Now, it doesn't say so that you don't grieve, it's saying so that you don't grieve like the rest. We still grieve, we still hurt, but we have hope. Uh, the pagan, the unbelieving, has no hope at death. So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. In the same way that God resurrected His Son, God will resurrect that person that you love that has passed away. They will be resurrected, those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Verse 15, for we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are still alive will be, and there's that word, caught up. That's the word in Latin that would be translated rapture. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with the Lord to meet, caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the what of the rapture. That is what is going to happen. Now, why is there a rapture? Why, 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 does, why do we need to have this event right here? Well, two reasons. One of them, we've, I hope you've seen now. One, we've got to get changed, don't we? At some point in time, the dead have to be resurrected. At some point in time, those who are still alive have to get this body that breaks down and get one that doesn't break down. And this is the rap. The, the rapture is that event, that moment where we get these bodies that are going to last forever and, and we are transformed from living on the earth to living with the Lord forever. But there's a second reason, and that is to remove us from the wrath of the tribulation. The tribulation is the outpouring of God's wrath on this world, and that is when he, the rapture is how he removes us from that wrath. Now, I'm already kind of showing my cards because the next question is when. And obviously, I'm telling you when I believe it's going to be. But let me show you one reason. Chapter 4, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, is one thought. It's all talking about this, uh, the, the rapture, and then we move into the day of the Lord, the, the tribulation, and, and what is all going to go on during that. And then it says in verse 9, again, it's continuing the same thought out of the rapture, chapter 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, now that's the same language we just read back in 4.13, whether we're awake or asleep, uh, that we will live together with Him, same phrase, verse 11, therefore encourage one another, again the same command, it's all tied together. Why is there a rapture? To deliver us from this wrath that we haven't been appointed to. We haven't been called to go through that wrath. So that's why there is a rapture. Now, having already kind of given away what I believe, let's ask that question. When is the rapture going to take place? Now, when I say when, I'm not talking about when on a calendar. When, when what time is that going to happen? I'm talking about when in relation to the tribulation. And there are actually four different views of when the rapture is going to happen. Now, when I say there's four views, this isn't a, a breakup from, you know, this denomination believes this or that denomination or, or liberal or conservative. For the most part, the people who hold these four views all, all believe in Christ. They all believe in God. They, they believe in the authority of scriptures. They believe they need to look to scriptures to see what God says about his return. So the, these are people that really, in effect, a lot like us. And yet, as they look at these passages, we, we in Christendom have kind of landed in four different spots. Now, the only thing I can tell you for sure about all four of these is only one of them's right. Okay? There's no possible way that, that two or three or a combination of these things can be right. Only one view is right. And, of course, it's, it's mine. Um, there's four views here. Partial, mid-tribulational, post-tribulational, and pre-tribulational. A lot of big words there. It just means in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation, or before the tribulation. And then there's that first one that's partial. Let's see what these are real quickly. Look at the partial rapture. And now, let me show you, all of these little graphs are going to look the same. It's just going to move the rapture line somewhere differently. So you've got the church period. That's where we're living right now. Then you've got this great tribulation. We're going to look at that next week. That's a seven-year time period of which we have rapture, second coming, and then we enter into the millennium, 
thousand year time period of Christ's reign in Jerusalem. And then we enter what is eternity. What we think about going to heaven, going to hell. Uh, hopefully we're going to heaven, right? Yeah. Okay. If you're not, we can take care of that at the end of the service. Um, so we're in the church period right now. The partial view says there's going to be a rapture, not for everybody, not, not for every believer, but only those believers who are watching, who are awaiting. They're referring to a number of parables that Jesus gives where he talks about the, the servant that is ready, that is prepared, that is watching for his master's return, watching for the Lord's return. If you're not watching and waiting, if you're not godly and faithful, then you're, you're toast. You're staying here and going through the tribulation. Uh, now, what they see in, in, in Revelation is several places where people become overcomers. And, and so they say, you know, when you arrive at the status of overcomer, then you'll be raptured there. So you see a bunch of arrows. They actually see a variety of different raptures happening during the tribulation at different times when people will be raptured up. They see the rapture basically as a reward for the faithful. And if you're an unfaithful believer, if, if you're an ineffective, a disobedient believer, then the tribulation is going to be a time of discipline in your life. Now, I've got a, a variety of problems with this view. The, the main one is the tribulation, as much as it's talked about, is never, not one single time, referred to as a discipline for believers. It is always referred to as a discipline for a Messiah-rejecting nation of Israel and a discipline for an unbelieving world. It's referred to that all throughout Scripture. Not one time is the tribulation ever said, and God will discipline unfaithful believers, uncommitted believers. So it's, it's never referred to that way. Another problem I have with this is it's, it's pretty difficult to read any passage and see that there's going to be all these different raptures taking place. Another problem I have with it was one of the passages we just read. 1 Corinthians 15 says we will all be changed. But if you believe this, you'd have to say, no, some of us are going to be changed. Some are not. Some of us. Or it also said we're all going to be changed when? In the twinkling of an eye. In a single moment. But if you had this view, then you'd have to say, no, some of us are going to be changed here. And then we'll go a little bit further in time and some will be changed here and then some will be changed here. This is probably this view probably has the least proponents, least popular, but it is out there. I'm just trying to show you what all is out there. Mid tribulational rapture, you can probably figure out, has the rapture happening in the middle of the tribulation. Now, when you study the tribulation, which we're going to next week, there are clearly two halves to the tribulation. There's a first half and a back half. The first half is bad. The second half is turbocharged bad. It's really, really bad. And, and as people study Daniel and Revelation, they say, you know, as we look at this, there's a lot of very significant events that happen right in the middle. And that is true. But it, it doesn't say anything about a rapture in the middle. It doesn't say anything about the church in the middle. As a matter of fact, all of these big events that happen right in the middle are all related to the Antichrist. Uh, I think basically what this view says is it looks like there's a lot of big things happening at the middle. We're not sure where the rapture happens, so we're putting it there when all this big stuff happens. Uh, one of the problems I have with a mid-tribulation view, and for that matter, a post-tribulational view, is what's going to be going on during the tribulation and what the Bible says people are gonna be, is going to be going on right before all this begins. Because if you still have your text open to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, in 5.3, it says before this day, people are going to be talking about peace and safety. I mean, we're going to be living in good times. You remember, Jesus talks a lot in the Gospels about when he comes, it's going to be like a thief in the night. 
People aren't going to be prepared. People aren't going to be expecting it. Life is going to be going on as normal. But folks, once you enter the tribulation, there's nothing normal going on. It says two, I'm trying to remember, two, maybe three times in Revelation, it refers to people actually trying to kill themselves and they can't die. God won't let them die. He's going to take them through this tribulation and this discipline. It is an awful time. There's no way that once you're in it, people are going to be calling peace and safety. So, so this idea that the Lord can return and take His church and we'll all be saying peace and safety. No, once we're in the tribulation, we'll be saying anything but that. Now that kind of takes us into the, the post-tribulational view. And you see that here and you've already figured that out. It just means that the second coming is going to happen at the end of the seven years. Or the rapture is going to happen at the end of the seven years. And it puts those two events together. And the rapture and the second coming are two different events. The Bible talks about Jesus coming for the saints. And we just read that when he comes for us, where do we meet him? In the air. It says that we go to the air to meet him. We rise up and meet him. But then the scripture also talks about Christ coming not for, but with the saints. We're on white horses. It's going to be awesome scene. And we're going to come with Christ and we don't stop in the air. We come all the way to the earth and that is into the battle of Armageddon. And that is the second coming of the Lord. Now they put those two events, they slam them right together. So you're kind of, we're we're going up and then we're coming back down and it, it kind of puts it all together. It also creates some other problems that I'm going to address when we get to the millennium. But when we, with the key view, and this is a, this is a big view. This is post and pre are the two most held views. There's a number of Southern Baptists. As a matter of fact, our largest Southern Baptist seminary, Southwestern in Fort Worth, Texas, had a a professor there that taught a post-tribulational view for for a couple of decades, a long time. And so we we churned out a bunch of pastors that held a post-tribulational view. So there's a lot of people that hold this view. The big reason is Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples walk up to him and they say, Jesus, when are you going to deliver the kingdom? When, when are you going to establish your kingdom on this earth? When are you going to be ruling in Jerusalem as we were taught to look forward to in the Old Testament? And so then Jesus, through that chapter, unfolds a bunch of events that look a lot like the tribulation. It's the same events of judgment that are going to be happening during those seven years. And then he says, and then I'll deliver the kingdom. Then I will return. And as you read through that, it's pretty hard to see that there's any rapture. It's pretty hard to see that that believers, that people of God are not going through that time. Now, I would address that two ways. First of all, believers being here is not a sign that there hasn't been a rapture. There are going to be people come to Christ during the tribulation. I believe on day one that the church is raptured up. There's not a single believer on the planet. But I believe on day two, they'll start becoming believers. Not the majority. It'll be a small group of people that will become believers and they will pay dearly like no other group of believers has ever had to. It will be extremely difficult. And that's where we get into the the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and and what it's going to be like to be a believer during that time. So there will be believers. The scripture clearly says that. But what's happening in Matthew 24, folks, you have to realize that God has given the Jews and the church a little bit different of a hope. The hope of a Jew is the millennial reign of Christ. You can read about it in Isaiah 60 to 66. is just one passage. But what they look for is the coming of a Messiah. They did not have in mind a first coming and a second coming. They didn't have in the mind a Messiah that would die on a cross. 
They were looking for a Messiah that would come and establish his kingdom on this earth. So when they asked Jesus about that, that's the question Jesus answers. He knows what they're asking. He knows the hope that they're looking for. And so he tells them, you as Jews are going to go through this time. Why? Because you rejected the Messiah. You rejected the first coming and they're going to go through this time and then be delivered into the millennial kingdom. The hope of the Jews is that millennial kingdom. The hope of the church is the rapture. So while you do not see a rapture in Matthew 24, he's addressing a different group of people. He's addressing a different question. Now, let me move to the pre-tribulational view and, and, the, and the reasons I hold to that. And I think it'll address some of the other reasons I don't hold the other views. Pre-tribulation, again, means that we're in the church period and it might be before dinner tonight. The church is going to be raptured up. We're going to we're going to rise up into the air. The dead in Christ will go before us. We'll meet them in the air. We'll be transformed. That could happen at any moment. And then, regardless of what signs have ever come in place, at that moment, everything will move into place. Nations, leaders, everything will begin to come together for what's going to unfold in the next seven years. Okay, We are raptured. Uh, the number of reasons I believe the church does not go through the tribulation. First one being the tribulation is called the, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob was the name of Israel before God renamed him Israel. It's the time of the Jews' trouble. It's the time of the Jews chastening for rejecting their Messiah. It's called that. It's not about the church. Another reason, the Scripture is dealing with a particular reference to Jews going through the tribulation, not the church. Real interesting thing, just kind of a little trivia thing. In Revelation 6 through 18, there's 13 chapters there dealing with the tribulation. It is extremely detailed. I mean, God's leaving nothing out. This is all of the information about the tribulation. And it is, it is dates, it is times, it is world leaders, it lists nations. I mean, all of these judgments, how they're going to happen, what it's going to do to the earth. Very detailed. And yet, in those 13 chapters, not once does John mention the church. Not one time. You say, well, maybe, maybe John's just not talking about the church right now. Maybe he doesn't even use that word in Revelation. No, actually, John uses the word church 20 times in the book of Revelation, but not once when he's talking about the tribulation. Why? Because we're not here. He can't talk about it because we're not here. And because we're not here, that moves into number three. Satan's focus and emphasis is on Israel. Satan is going full bore to destroy the nation of Israel. Folks, if the church were still here, we would be his emphasis. We would be his target. But with us removed, he turns all of his effort to the, to the Jews. Another thing, looking a little bit different way, uh, different things of why I believe the nature of the church kind of forbids it, and that's kind of a strong word, but forbids it from going through the tribulation. And some of this is going to be a little bit of summary from what I've already said. Number one, the focus of the tribulation is on those who've rejected Christ, not those who've accepted Him. It's not about us. It's about those that rejected. Number two, we're promised deliverance. Number three, Scripture encourages you and me to constantly be looking for the Lord's return. Well, folks, if you believe in a mid or a post, we wouldn't be looking for the Lord's return. We'd be looking for signs that were in the tribulation because once we saw the signs that were in the tribulation, well, then we can almost nail it down to the date that we can be expecting his return. So it wouldn't say look for his return. It'd be saying look for the signs of the tribulation, which kind of leads to the next point. Why would we look forward to a time of wrath? 
Did you hear me twice read, therefore, encourage one another with these words? Folks, the encouragement of your life, the encouragement of my life is that God's going to come and get us. And God's going to make this world right. And all prayers are going to be answered in that moment. Now, how would we encourage each other if we're going to go through the tribulation? When do you encourage somebody? When they're going through a bad time, right? So what do I do and say, man, I see you're really going through a bad time. Well, take heart, man. It hasn't really gotten bad at all yet. It's going to get much, much, much worse. You've got really a very good opportunity of being beheaded if we ever get to the tribulation. I mean, how would that be? Do you see how that doesn't go together? If we're going through the tribulation, why would we encourage each other? No, the encouragement is that God is coming to get us. Uh, number five, and folks, of all the reasons, this may be the biggest reason I believe the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation. And that is because the New Testament commands, urges, teaches a constant state of expectancy for you and I. It teaches what we call the imminent return of Christ. Imminent means it could happen today. And if you're a Redskins fan, you should be praying it happens today because there is nothing to stay here for. Um, it can come, I don't know what time they play, just come before then, Lord. Uh, but the imminent return means if it could happen, it, I mean, it could happen at any time. Now, follow me, folks. If you believe in the mid-tribulational or the post-tribulational view, then you cannot obey Scripture and believe that Christ can return today. I know Christ is not going to return today because the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. I know Christ is not going to return today because we haven't seen judgments. I mean, folks, think about Do you remember that tsunami? What was that, 04? 2004, where like 200,000 people died over the, the space of a couple of days? Can you imagine what that would look like on the news when 1.8 million people are dying a day? So I can't believe that Christ is coming today because nothing like a tribulation. And we're going to describe that next week. And it is. I don't care what you think about wars and disasters. Folks, we've seen nothing like what the great tribulation is described as. So since we haven't seen any of that, I know at a bare minimum, I mean, if it all started tonight at a bare minimum, he's not returning for seven more years. And if that's what I believe, then I have to throw out a ton of scripture that says Jesus can come like a thief in the night. You better be prepared. It could happen at any moment. How can you believe that and then hold these other views of the rapture? So these are some of the reasons and I'm, I'm running pretty short on time here. Uh, and, and folks, all of these notes. OK, I'm I'm finishing. All right. Um, gosh, uh, unless that was you, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm really hurrying now. Um, all of these notes, I know there's no way to write all these down. There's, there's a lot here to pour over, folks. Remember, go to our website, chbaptist.com, click on the What Is Sermon series, and you can get a PDF format and download all of these notes. So you can kind of look at them and say, that guy's a fool, or man, he's got it right on, whatever. But study it for yourself, because I know as I've gone through this uh, this morning very quickly, you're, you're, you're in one of three camps right now. You're sitting here thinking, man, this was really interesting. I'd like to learn a lot more. Or you're thinking, I am perhaps more confused now than I've ever been in my life. Or you were in, I lost you like 20 minutes ago. You're doodling and bored and just waiting for it to end. I don't know what camp you're in. But folks, can I remind you why we're doing this entire series? Can I remind you what I said back in March? There's not a single sermon I'll ever preach that will answer all the questions. That is the definitive and last statement. There's not, you, you cannot 
subsist in the Christian life on a diet of just sermons. Folks, sermons enhance what we've already learned or they inspire us to go start learning. Either one. But the sermon, the preacher, is just a part of your diet, of your growth, of learning. What I hope today does for you is say, man, this is supposed to be affecting my life. I've got a lot to learn. And you dive into Scripture, you dive into these notes, you go get like that book, Theology You Can Count On, by Tony Evans that we've talked about, and it'll introduce you to other books. Folks, you need to study these things. God told you for a reason, and it wasn't go, man, I don't know, that's a lot of stuff. I'm sure somebody will figure it out. No, He wants you to know. He wants you to understand. He wants you to study. Now, regardless of which one is right, and I am right, folks, you just got to take me on this one. But regardless of which one is right, there's two things for sure as we conclude today. Number one, this is to be the encouragement in our life. Some of you right now want the encouragement of healing. You want the encouragement of restoration. You want the encouragement of a job. You want the encouragement of your kids acting right. You we want all these different encouragements. And that's fine. And pray about them. The great promise of God in your life is I'm coming back. And if you don't anchor your life in that, then you're really... I mean, you're working uphill to try to find hope and encouragement in this world. So this is a place to go and to study and to learn, because not only am I to be encouraged by this, but I'm to turn around and encourage you. I'm to encourage you with these things. How many times you've been talking to me? I just don't know what to say. Things are so bad. Folks, Jesus is telling you this is what to say. I'm going to come and fix it. That's your great hope. The second thing. Are you ready? How can you study in any of this and not be saying, am I ready for this? Because it is going to happen. Whatever the timing is, the bottom line, it is going to happen exactly like he writes it, exactly like he says it. Am I going to be ready? Have I been a faithful witness to my friends and my family and my loved ones around me that I know in my heart is are not Ready. They're not ready. Every person in this room has people all around you that you love and care for, and they're not ready. Are you ready? Are you being a witness to those who are not ready? God is patient. The proof of it is he's allowed you to have this moment right here. And it's not that his patience run out. It's just that one day. It's going to be time. Jesus says, the Bible says, the day of salvation is right now. The time to get ready is right now. We conclude all of our services with a time of invitation. You know what we could call that? A time of getting ready. Because there's people in this room right now, you've, you're just flesh and blood. You've not been born of the Spirit. You don't have that relationship with Christ. You're not ready if this starts to unfold tonight. Well, this time is for you. Jesus has been patient so you today could respond. In a moment, our congregation is going to stand and sing and there'll be pastors down here at the front. That's your opportunity to take a step of faith and say, I want to unite my life with Christ. I want to get ready. Maybe today you're saying, you know what? I've been dilly-dallying and putting off following my Savior's command that as a believer, I'm to be baptized. And I'm going to take a step of readiness today and I'm going to go up there and tell them it's time for me to be baptized. Maybe you're here today and you, you don't, you're saying, you know what, I'm not a part of the church. I've not joined the church. I'm ignoring my Savior's command to unite with the local body, to unite with the church and be a part of the family of God. Folks, what steps of readiness are you going to take? Because it is happening. 
Jesus doesn't tell you to think about how this could happen one day way out there. Jesus says, you've got one thought. What if it happens right now? What if it happens right now? You know, if you thought it was, wouldn't that affect your decisions? Wouldn't it affect whether you forgive? Wouldn't it affect how you treat your mate? That's how we're to live every day.